You understand the meaning of the word foreboding? As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Well, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. My best friend David went to Kurdistan together, but we split up. Should have been back a week ago. I can't do this anymore, man. David, run home. David! We extracted this from the back of his head, shrapnel. Do you think you can help him? Yes, of course I can help him. I can help anyone. Triage. Makeshift hospital in the field. Soldiers that came in that were too gravely wounded. Their own doctor took them outside and killed them. Mercy killings. How can someone you must have a lot of regret. Regret to what, Mr. Walsh? What up, David? Surely he could get a message out to me somehow. Perhaps you have not told us the whole story. I do not understand the profession of war photographer in any way whatsoever. Like I, I understand Interesting. What, I understand what the function of that occupation is, but I cannot understand the mind of any individual who will like take on that job as being as 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 owning that occupation as being something that they do and not just like a person who finds themselves in a war zone and is also a photographer and steps up to the challenge of like documenting what they see going on i know it's an occupation that exists i'm not trying to say that you don't understand why someone would do it yeah i have like i have like a deep i have like a deep deep skepticism of like how anybody would find themselves in that position it's because the action is the juice (laughs) i mean that's what it is though right but it's but it's seeing the action it's like you want to be in the shit yeah, like you're you you got to be a bit of an adrenaline junkie to to be a fucking war photographer. But it's like, if that's what you're into, why aren't you joining the fucking war? Is this my, is okay. Is see, the this thing is yeah. this is my thing. Is I'm like, I don't think I could ever be a war photographer, and it has nothing to do with like I'd be scared of dodging bullets. To be clear would be scared of dodging bullets. <laughs> but whenever I deal with like some piece of media about a war photographer, the thing that like my hang up isn't like that. It's the whole you have to like sit there and take a picture of like the dude getting shot in the head. That's like what I'm v- saying. Like in Vietnam. Yeah. Like like the 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 degree of like I know journalists like to huff their own farts. And talk about how they're like purely objective observers. But let's be honest, like the degree of like amorality you need to possess in your soul to be a successful war photographer, like that I don't understand. It it seems like you have to be soulless to do it truly. It's because you have to have access. You have to have access. There's also I'm you know, I I don't want to I don't want to lay judgment on on the entire act of of this in totality. But there, there, there. I, I feel like there is a, a 
an aura of elitism about it as like i'm coming from this place that is safe that yes there is not war breaking out in the streets and i'm just gonna stand by and watch as like civilians are being lit on fire and get exactly. shots of it so that time magazine can show like middle class white liberal people what's going on abroad in yes brooklyn you know yeah um I know I've said on this podcast and to you and to everyone I know many, many times that I do not particularly care for Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Um, And I know it's not a one-to-one because he is a soldier, but I think one of the most incisive things about Full Metal Jacket is that for all of Joker's like blustering, that he's a journalist, that he's like sticking it to the man, um, he's not. He can't like he can't actually do anything interesting because to to be able to be in those like combat zones, he has to like capitulate to what the army wants him to write. And obviously it's different because like he is a he is a joker is a function of propaganda within the military. So are war photographers in a way, right? Like I get what you're saying. And I you don't get invited to those to the spaces where you can take the photographs. Unless you're, unless you're serving someone's ultimate goal, that's yes. my take on more photographers. I, I think mean, wittingly is... or non-wittingly, you are in the service yeah. of one of at, at, at any time. Again, I, I I'm not within this space, so I don't want to generalize completely. But to me, it feels like at any given time, from what I understand about war photographers is you are always in the service of a side of the conflict. Well, you have to be because you have to like have a dude with a gun providing cover for you. You have to be like like escorted around by people within the conflict. You have to be- I guess in theory, you could be a actual legitimate freelancer in an active war zone. Theoretically, no one's going to do that. Um. (laughs) I mean, this is the whole thing everyone says about Vietnam, right? Is that the the, the military like kind of loosens the restrictions vis-a-vis what the, the press could show in Vietnam during the war. And then they quickly learned their lesson and they never did that again. Yes. Yeah. Um, have you read and or seen Five Came Back? The Mark no. Harris book? I haven't. Um, really interesting. Because that book is functionally about war journalism via hollywood right that like they don't have actual they're not in world war ii the military isn't bringing reporters into these combat zones they're bringing john ford and john houston and william wyler capra capra stays stateside the whole time oh does Um, he really capra Capra makes just makes home front he makes he makes home front propaganda he makes like why we fight he makes like educational films Weiler and Ford and Houston and Stevens are actually seeing real combat, but there's a real tension in what's going on with these guys where like some of them are actually seeing and shooting real stuff. And then some of them are shooting scripted reenactments that are presented as real footage. Like John Houston basically like is in the Italian invasion, but he's trailing the actual invasion front with a separate like military crew to reenact the like battles like a week after they've happened. Like he's with the second wave of guys, but like Weiler is no one talks about it this way, but like 
Weiler makes best years of our lives because Weiler is disabled in the war. Uh, Cause he's in the Memphis bell. Like he's in the actual Memphis bell. Uh, and it's so fucking loud up there that he loses his hearing. Cause oh, wow. he's on bomb. He's on actual bombing runs with the Memphis bell. What is the name of this book again? Five came back. Five came back. A uh, great book by Mark Harris. Uh, who also wrote that really, really good biography of Mike Nichols from a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not see it, but Netflix made it into like a four-part documentary uh, that was produced by like Spielberg and Del Toro and Oprah, I think. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. That people said was really good. Um, I am not well-versed in the, in that specific period of uh, Hollywood yeah, I involvement. Think, yeah. yeah, I think you'll find this really interesting. It's a really interesting portrait of the propaganda machine yeah i mean i yeah. i remember like in inglorious bastards is the whole yeah Germ- germany goebbels yeah. propaganda thing at play and and how that interacts with cinema and uh i think we have we ha- we have this feeling of what exactly what you were describing of houston doing as like a mechanism of like almost like a fascist Sure. Uh, I uh, mean, they they all have tensions. Like, Weiler and Stevens are actually capturing real combat, and so is Ford. To a degree, the Ford's doing a lot of reenactments. But, like, it's not like they have free reign access to release that footage, right? Like, they're they're enlist, they're officers in the military. They're making, like, they have to clear this through the army, but they are capturing real combat footage. Houston isn't which I think is very interesting. Um, fun fact about uh, George Stevens, a uh, fun in massive um, air quotes. He was, he was with the first wave of people into Dachau, the, really? the concentration camp, the death yeah. camp. Um, and he made um, two documentaries about Dachau involving like, actual footage of the people being liberated that um were were literally intended for the Nuremberg trials like they screened them at the Nuremberg trials wow yeah I don't know know if you can I don't know if you can actually watch these things I know they're um like the Library of Congress has the prints somewhere because they're government funded property they sound horrifying um yeah I mean it's like some of the only like active concentration camp footage ever captured. Um, yeah, this is going to be a fun episode, listeners. We, yeah, listeners, this is <laughs> listeners. This is above the title. Your podcast about the state of the twenty first century movie star and uh, what that means in this growing history of Hollywood and and how things have been changing over the last twenty five years. I'm Connor. I'm Cole. And this week we were talking about the 2009 drama Triage, starring yeah. our favorite Irish best boy Colin Farrell. He's as not a... a best boy; he's an <laughs> actor. It's a different union. He's not an IAC. <laughs> no, it's just more. It's it's. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This uh... movie is about a, a a photo a a war photojournalist who goes to Kurdistan in uh, 1988, and yeah comes back home to London and is uh, deeply traumatized by it. And, yeah. Uh, uh, this movie is... Um, okay, so, like, as I think we discussed 
on last week's episode and we don't know at this point how long it's going to be until we put this episode out so that might have been a week ago that might have been a couple months ago um we'll see um the the, the universe was kind of telling us not to watch this movie right um yeah it yeah. was it was a difficult proposition for us to actually watch get copies of this movie that we could watch i think we were um, going to film last wednesday yeah. And on Saturday, I did my usual like, OK, time to watch the film, time to like start preparing for what we're going to talk about. Uh, and I um, quickly realized that it was not available on any streaming sites, like in any form whatsoever yeah. for rental, for purchase. Uh, like within the subscription service for purchase, nothing. It seemed like it's it might be available through a through a foreign streamer that provides access that's paid through youtube which i was seemed, not willing to try dodgy. i don't even it know dodgy. Yeah. um and also like look i don't know how to pirate movies i literally don't know how to pirate movies i don't know how torrenting works um i just never figured it out because i've there's not much out there that i think you actually need to torrent really and when there is i can just ask a friend to do it for me um most times if like a movie this recent like isn't actually available on digital platforms someone will have either uploaded it to archive.org or youtube yeah right like yeah that is the extent of my piracy like, knowledge for example a film that we saw not too long ago called intermission from 2003 i, all, I believe yes, is, is. Uh, on youtube there's a copy uh, of it no on i think it's on archive.org because i think i saw it when i was looking for um, it's probably also on archive.org yeah, yeah uh a lot of stuff's on archive.org. hopefully a certain uh, other movie that we're running into problems about how we're gonna watch <laughs> you can't i, I can't I, I, i'm just gonna say this listeners you can't get mad at us for pirating Artemis Fowl if yes. there's literally no legal way for us to watch Artemis Fowl. You have to blame Bob Iger. Um, Fuck Bob Iger. Bob Iger, I, it's on site. <laughs> fucking hate I, Bob Iger. I think, I, I think Artemis Fowl will probably be an easier find for us uh, than probably. Triage was. Anyway. Um, um, but essentially... Cole, you found yours. For, uh, you got a copy mailed to you by a library, right? Yes. A DVD. Uh, one of the upsides of living where I live is that we don't have a great library network, but basically all the libraries in the Southwest will ship titles to any other library in the Southwest, which is very convenient. So, yes, I did. It just took forever to get here. Uh I bought a DVD that happened to be region locked. I believe I'm not, <laughs> not entirely sure why it wouldn't play, but it just flat out didn't play when I put it into my Xbox, which I, I use because I have not bought a uh, dedicated DVD Blu-ray player in my, um with my PA salary that is quickly <laughs> being put on hold for a time being. So then I bought a Blu-ray that was available that did eventually end up working, but that okay. was only like 10 days after we had. I was only able to watch this film like more than a week and a half after I realized that it wasn't available like anywhere yes. easily. Same, yeah. same with me. This is like what, almost two weeks since we last recorded? Yeah, yeah. It's been almost two weeks. We were supposed to record this almost two weeks ago. Um, yeah. And then 
on top of all this Michigas of like, how the fuck do we get physical copies of this movie that is barely in print even physically? I go to watch this movie this morning and at like the hour 10 mark, the disc completely craps out at me. <laughs> and now I get it working again for, for a while there. It's looking like I'm not going to be able to watch the last third of this. What movie. happened? Is there like a scratch on the disc? There, are, it, there, are, it, there are chips. Oh. There are like, ugh. people don't treat their library discs well. And it makes me very upset. Um, I, I love, I love libraries. I love the fact that libraries can act as a repository for DVDs that aren't on streaming. It's great. I use it all the time. Let's not pretend that people don't treat public property respectfully. Sometimes I do personally, I'm very nice. I like clean this guy with a microfiber and everything. Cause I care. No one's going to want to watch this fucker again, but um, anyway, my point being is that it was hard to actually watch this movie. We kind of had to rush this recording. Um, I did not really have time to do much actual research on the real historical events uh, that this movie is about. This like Kurdish genocide that occurred in Northern Iraq in the late 80s. Beyond, yes. like, what the movie presents, which is basically nothing, right? I was able to do a little bit more uh, research than you, although I, I was also fairly rushed, I think, coming into this uh, this recording. Um, from what I understand, this this was this this was a period or a chapter in uh, Saddam Hussein's kind of conquest of neighboring territories that may have possibly had oil in them like they weren't mm -hmm. sure if there was subterranean oil or not so he just conquered whatever he could to to get yeah. drills set up to see see what was there um but yeah this was very much a genocide uh, yeah but but the, the the point i'm making is the movie doesn't actually care about that right no, I, I guess that's why disinterested I, in the terms of the genocide. Yes, that's what I think that's why I started this conversation by by relaying to you my feelings about yeah. photojournalism, because yeah. this is while that is a, an event that is depicted within this film, this film is not designed in any way to be in a definitive account of what happened during that conflict. Yeah, this is, I think, a more conflict ambiguous take on the cost of foreign conflict on the like the western media apparatus and like those involved in it yeah it's just this could be a movie about i think any late 20th century conflict right yeah like a yeah. thing i thought was so this movie was directed by um denise tonovic I think it's how you pronounce it. I think um, it's um, I think it's Danis. Danis. Danis Tanovich. Maybe Tanovich. Um, Danis Tanovich is one of, if not the most acclaimed um, Bosnian filmmakers alive. Uh, um, I think fairly undeniably. Especially because Amir Kustarika uh, yeah. has renounced his Bosnian ethnic identity. Like, I think uh, Amir Kusturika is probably the guy who would hold the, the camp, but me just saying that just, like, reinflamed 
decades worth of like political debate around that guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, to uh, just just to recap, um, Dennis Tenovich uh, is from. He was born in Bosnia in the late sixties, and um, he became not a, a photojournalist but a video journalist during the um, uh, the Bosnian War. And um, he lived in Sarajevo. He was studying in Sarajevo and he uh, sold video footage of the conflict that was taking place to um, news media like across the the Western, the the Western world. Uh, I don't even think the war had technically been over yet when he decided to leave, like he had had enough of it. And I believe he went to Belgium and completed like, undergraduate study at Belgium which he had pushed off because of the war um and then he became a filmmaker and he's he made a a, a very important documentary called No Man's Land it's not um, a documentary it's a fiction film is it is it it's fiction it's fiction. I haven't seen it it's fiction um, it's a fiction film that yeah. film's about the Bosnian war yes right? it yeah. is probably the most high profile movie about just the, the 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 Bosnian War specifically, but also the broader Balkan conflict. Um, if you get what I'm saying, of which there are quite a few, because I, I know that that war has kind of lost its, I feel like cultural, you know, juris, jurisprudence in the in the West in a way, like it's almost been memory hold, but it is like the major war of the '90s. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and the follow through. My my point is that I thought it was interesting that that this movie triage, given that this is by a Bosnian filmmaker who is best known for making this like well Oscar winning, you know, well respected movie about the Bosnian War. That he did not make a movie about an American photo, a Irish photojournalist in Bosnia. Um. And I know what the answer to why he didn't do that is, is because this movie is based on a novel yeah. um, about the the um, this Kurdish genocide. Um, but narratively, this movie could be about Bosnia. This movie could. could be set in the 40s and be about the Holocaust, right? This movie could be about Rwanda. This movie could be about anything because the details of the specific conflict – I mean, I have a pet theory about what's actually going on here, um, but okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw this out here. Um, <laughs> okay, We're I don't know to this. what to what degree you remember this. Obviously, this movie is made in 2009. Yeah, by well, be shot in 2008, I think. Um, comes out in 2009 at TIFF, and then as we said last week, gets a goes straight to DVD in the U.S. By the way, does not get a theatrical release in the U.S. Um, I think, like from what I understand. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong about this, but from what I understand, like Ondine, this is during the writer's strike in 2008 when uh, many actors who could made smaller stuff in abroad and smaller stuff Possibly. in Europe when they couldn't make stuff in the United States. At least they couldn't make stuff that they they felt comfortable putting their name on within the United States. And I um, I, I believe that like Ondine, this is this is Colin, who is a European actor, <laughs> given the opportunity yes. to go back. To Europe and make something at a smaller scale and something maybe a little bit more important personally to to the stuff that he believes in. Now I know by like 2008, 2009, 
the 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 mass public support for the Iraq war, the invasion has like yeah. really cratered that like it's it's become so evident that it's just just this messy ugly i mean they called it a quagmire for a reason right like i know this isn't 2004 2005 we're booing uh michael moore like part of the bush anointment right I and mean, the, the obama anointment and even mccain is this like anti-bush figure in 08 is this sense of like the iraq war was a mistake we need to correct obviously obama does not correct it but whatever that being said the sort of i don't know how much you know about iraqi geopolitics connor I'm not going to I think from any American with a graduate degree in yeah. the humanities I know the bare basics. I, I don't necessary. know a huge amount, I know a decent amount, but you know, when I say this movie is about a Kurdish genocide, let me just clarify that like the Kurds are a separate ethnic group um that occupy northern Iraq and also some sections of Syria and Lebanon and I think Turkey and I think even Iran, right? Like, there's this whole like separate ethnic minority that kind of got divvied up into five different countries when the contemporary borders of the Middle Eastern nations were drawn uh, in the early 20th century. I am certainly not asympathetic to the idea that Kurdistan should be its own separate nation, uh, separate from those five countries that it actually belongs to. Um, I, I am, in fact, very sympathetic to that argument. Um, and I think clearly the Kurds have been horribly mistreated, especially by the Ba'athist regime in Iraq, uh, as this movie acknowledges. Um, but I also know that Kurdish nationalism was very much cited by more centrist, liberal, pro-invasion, like, pundits and talking heads as, like... Uh, the reason that it was justifiable to invade Iraq, right? That like, it, it wasn't so much the Bush administration thrust where the Bush administration thrust was like axis of evil allied with bin Laden. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction, all this stuff. But then I distinctly remember this strong undercurrent of like, well, Bush is wrong and those associations are wrong and blah, 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 blah. But- he is oppressing the Kurds, and that is why it is justifiable to have invaded um, Iraq, right? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, as as an indictment against Saddam. Hussein. Exactly. That yeah. like, well, I don't agree with Bush, but Saddam is bad, and that's why we should have gone. That like hawkish yes. wing of the and Democratic Party. Frankly, like the terrible things that, that Saddam Hussein did do. In, in terms Undeniable. Of using chemical weapons yeah. and breaking, it, uh, becoming a, a, a war criminal during this specific conflict. Yeah. So I I do watch this movie in 2000 coming out in 2009 and I do think about how like Barack Obama kind of gets elected on the implicit promise that he's going to pull us out of Iraq and he doesn't. Um and I do kind of watch this and like is the reason they're making a movie about this because they don't care about this Kurdish genocide, right? The movie is so disinterested in it. Yeah. Is the reason they're doing this to kind of shore up that argument that the Iraq invasion was morally the right idea? Because hmm. if you compare this to a movie like Hotel Rwanda, right? Yeah. Like, which is another big, glossy Western production. That is a movie that is like, say what you will about it. I don't think it's very good. 
deeply horrified about like the inactions of the UN vis-a-vis letting the Rwandan genocide occur. Or something more recent like um, Covitis Ida. Sure. Yeah. Another. Yeah, yeah. 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 A movie that I was not taken with as much as everyone else was. Um, I think about Winterbottom's Welcome to Sarajevo. Uh, like, like these are movies about these, you know, Westerners looking at these foreign genocides that had happened in the recent past. That I think have this like deep, horrific, like bleeding heart passion. Even if that passion doesn't lead to anything, you know. Yeah. Um, because it's just a movie that this movie just truly, I think, does not give a shit about any of that stuff in a way I found very frustrating. I don't know if I found it frustrating. It, it, it's it, it is like a fingerprint of this strange film that's not about the ethical quandaries of like war itself, but about again, like I said, like like the Western like media apparatus and how like war functions as as a, a generator of content for said thing yeah but you and like these made... people who involve themselves in it to capture said content and then come back like horribly irreparably changed from what they experienced overseas or across borders yeah. which is uh generally by the way a thing i'm very disinterested in this idea that and I know this isn't an American film, and I shouldn't be necessarily talking about it in the context of American films, but every American war film since fucking 1977, right, <laughs> is about how the war changes the people who serve. And I'm like, but the war's not about you, yeah. John Voigt in Coming Home. The war is not about you, Jeremy Renner in The Hurt Locker. The war is not about you, Christopher Walken in The Deer Hunter, right? The, the war is about the actual people who are suffering because of this thing. And it's it's just the story. And I love some of those movies I just listed, right? But like, it's just the one story where the West is interested in telling about these wars. Well, I think it is what you know, Welcome to Sarajevo is about. As as frustrated as you can get about those movies that take place during Vietnam or or portray Vietnam, there there is this there is this. Um, I, I think you said it. I think you summed it up perfectly during the Tigerland episode. If I can remember correctly, that far back from where we are now, that there's this idea of Vietnam. Um, as as like an offense against the Vietnamese people, but also an offense by the United States government against young uh, American men who were well, set I off think, to set conflict. I and then think what the makes... latter is the way we talk yeah, about Vietnam. To clarify, I understand. Yeah. yeah, but I'm saying what makes this movie such an enigma is that like they're these men are doing it to themselves, like yes. sending themselves there at individually. <laughs> <laughs> in, in like an economic sense in like a means of of uh i don't know like uh, for their occupation for to if you say as as we love to say that the action is the juice there 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 is something about the non-conflict specific war photojournalist the idea of it itself is like almost the largest condemnation against the modern world that like 
the world as it is can function in a way where we can just send people off to these places where apocalyptic events are taking place just to be able to fill magazine pages with images and today just to fill iphone screens with images of such stuff that's actually taking place let me let me let me give you the boilerplate in this movie and then i have a point to make and then i'll (laughs) do the plot synopsis okay uh so this is the 2009 film triage uh written and directed by donis tanovich um based on the novel by Scott Anderson. Um, I believe that novel is semi-autobiographical, though don't quote me on that. I um, I I mean Scott Anderson was a photojournalist. I believe that's why I'm wondering. South African, am I right? No, he was he was raised in East Asia. Yeah. Sorry. It looks like he mostly did did stuff in Northern Ireland and Bosnia. Again, um, I hear his recent biography of T. Lawrence is actually quite good. Um, I've been meaning to read it. Uh, anyway, um, the film stars Colin Farrell, Paz Vega, Christopher Lee, Bronco Durek, Kelly Riley, Jamie Sives, Reese Ritchie, Juliet Stevenson, and Ian McElhaney. Uh, hey, Connor, uh, you know what I just did? <laughs> Listed <laughs> off a bunch of people, none of whom are from the Middle East. <laughs> Not a single actor in this movie was speaking with a speaking parole. No. Is, I believe a middle easterner and the, the the doctor is also bosnian the most primary iraqi character in this movie is played <laughs> by a, a famous a bosnian movie star yeah um it's like that's that, that's the point i'm making right is like you would think you would want some iraqis in this or some kurds even not just arabic iraqis like kurds in this movie about this horrific, awful thing that was inflicted upon the Kurdish people, which is what it was. Um, the plot of triage, it is 1988. Uh, Colin Farrell plays Mark Walsh, a decorated and notorious war photographer famed for his willingness to face down any danger. Um, he and his friend and co-worker David uh, head to Kurdistan to document uh, the Iraqi uh, conflicts with the Kurds and the the, the offensive against the Kurds. Um, when they are there, they mostly see documentations of dead bodies. Um, they spend some time in a makeshift medical camp uh, where they see the doctor running the camp will frequently just mercy kill uh, wounded Kurds that he cannot, uh, that he cannot save. Yeah. Um, after this brief like moment of this, this brief like first act of these two men like spending time in these field hospitals, seeing some brief conflicts, debating whether or not they're going to stick around and like go deeper into the actual war zones, there's a flash forward. Mark has been injured in some mysterious fashion. David is missing. Mark says that he just slipped and fell in a river and hit his head after separating from David, who chose to go into the war zone. An injured Mark. Returns to London. To no, it's reun- the uh, it's the opposite. In the scene, the scene that you see right before the flash forward, uh, there's there's an um, there's like an outflanking. There's like a guerrilla sabotage yes. of an Iraqi um, convoy that's like moving yes. through the countryside, and all of the Kurdish troops say they're gonna go try to take the Iraqi base that's close yes. by, and. Mark wants to push on with them and, and continue You're with right. them towards the base. And David says, no, he's had enough of it. He just wants right. to go back I did, to did. I did get it flipped. Yeah. But then there's this flash forward. Yeah. And Mark has fallen and hit his head in a river. And David has 
gone off somewhere to do more photography. They have split up at some point. No, it's he's not. He's been implied that David has just gone back to London. That okay. he's just made his way to like some kind of base and well, that just doesn't make sense given what then happens. That's what um, he says, though. That's okay, what Mark I, says. That I, I completely misinterpreted what he said. <laughs> Regardless, um, Mark then returns to London. He is kind of standoffish uh, with his wife, played by Paz Vega, and David's pregnant wife, um, played by Kelly Riley. Um, he ends up publishing a book of the photographs that he took in the in the medical bases and the surrounding areas, but doesn't really want to talk about anything he saw then. Eventually, um, his wife uh, gets her Spanish grandfather, who's a psychiatrist, who served on the uh, Francoist side in the Spanish Civil War, to come treat him. Um, Joaquin, played by Christopher Lee, confronts Mark with the sort of brutal truths of the genocide that was inflicted on the Kurdish people, thinking that this is what Mark does not want to talk about. And then Mark decides to come clean with what he saw, which was that David stepped on a landmine or got caught in a bombing and lost his legs. Mark tried to drag him back to safety. They ended up in a river. David was too heavy. Mark had to let him go or they would both drown. And that's it. Mark let his best friend die. And that's the movie. Yep. So my point being is that the movie spends all this time thinking that like, well, he just saw the horrific truths <laughs> of the genocide and even yeah. has like Christopher Lee doing the fucking goodwill hunting. It's not your fault while holding up the fucking like New York Times with the like 5,000 Kurds gasped or whatever. And then the reveal they, like is it is it was your fault that your friend died. It was and... your fault that your friend died and you didn't yeah. even see any of the awful <laughs> stuff. that. I, so when I say this movie doesn't give a shit about this genocide, when I say this movie could be set in any conflict, it could. But okay, so what I'm gonna say to you is that for exactly what you just said, and due to this film specific director, it could not be said in Bosnia. Sure. Well, yes, yeah. yes. Like there are specific reasons, but I'm saying like because then we're we, talking about a completely different type of film that may or may not, but may be a better film. Yeah. Uh, more but, along the lines of like what you would want this film to be. The, the crux of the story that is being told could be set in any conflict, right? This idea yeah. that he went, everyone thinks he saw something horrible. What actually happened is the war got too close to him and he got like physically injured and lost someone, right? That's divorced from any particulars of this being set in Kurdistan in 1988. I understand why that can be treated as a fault of the film. And I'm, I'm the next thing I'm going to say, I'm not trying to say as a benefactor of the film's quality. I, I just find it an almost more telling, like pessimistic take that like, it's almost like saying the Western world will not care about what's happening out there unless it hits close to home. Like it did for this man who went over there with his friends. Uh... Yeah. I don't, I, I get what you're saying, but again, that's just every movie we make though, right? Like it's, it is, that's but the it's contemporary not because American we say film. that about, we say that about soldiers, but we don't tend to put it in industrial terms like this film. 
look, this film is is not uniformly coherent in that sense. Like, Did you love ethically, this movie? It sounds like you loved this movie. I didn't. I didn't love this movie. I think it, it's 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 a film with many faults. Yeah. I I found the ending to be very affecting, but I believe I didn't find it affecting in the way that the film like wants you to be affected by it. I found it affecting. Break this down. I found it. I feel like when you get to the end, the film is trying to like really hit on these notes of like what we put or not what we put, but what people who live through conflict zones go through in terms of like losing those who are close to them and having survivor's guilt and being complicit in whatever way you want to clarify that or quantify that or qualify that in, in terms of like people's lives being lost yet they survive. And a lot of sacrifices, both interpersonal ethical sacrifices, but also like true physical mathematical sacrifices need to be made in order for some people to survive while other people are killed and and lost and left behind and but that's not the way that i was affected by the film like i said i was affected by this like very pessimistic stance that like what we are seeing in the magazines and what the news is telling us is happening is not important unless you lose not as much but if you lose like in some sense a magnitude of what the people in those places are also losing i think that's an interesting take yeah I don't know. That's not that's not what these films about soldiers coming home from war are necessarily about. Like those are about those experiences as a soldier and what that does to a person. Yeah, because I kind of I kind of had a similar thought to this because I was thinking about this sense of like him him being a war journalist in the context of being the protagonist of a film, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm about to get some Mulvian on you here. Um, (laughs) but this sense that like, and I was thinking about that scene where you know, he, he 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 tells Plummer about this moment where he was taking a picture of some prisoners and one of the prisoners saw him and like ran to um ran ran to see if he could get rescued and they shoot him in the back and there's this question of like, well, if I wasn't there with my camera, would I get shot in the back? And I was thinking of the sense of like, well, but Danish Tanovic like literally set up that scenario, right? Yeah. That like the, we're seeing the guy shot in the back because this man with the camera set it up and we're seeing it happen because he wants to then sell that image back to us, the audience. And therefore, like Colin is functioning as this sort of simulacra of both filmmaker and audience vis-a-vis his relation to these war crimes he's witnessing. Right. Do you get what I'm saying? In a but sense, in a, yeah. in a way that is about like collapsing the trauma and the suffering of it back onto us to make us like feel better about ourselves, I think. And to me, that's not interesting because I'm like, but it's not about him. It's never about him. It's not about us. It's you. not about Tanovich. I think it's about the Kurtz. I think the two flashbacks of quote-unquote war stories as they're presented by the christopher lee like like fairly if if the form of this film ever like becomes comical it's like those two instances where christopher lee is like tell me a war story and then it turns into like it it like family guys with like a a cutaway to (laughs) to a sketch uh it's like a horrifying sketch but like that's essentially like what the film does and uh 
I think those are just in terms of like how those miniature setups are choreographed in order to like get their point across and as quick and in as melodramatic a manner as possible i think they're like by far the most mishandled segments of the film by far and and i think if you want to take what those it's it's a messy film is what i'm saying and if when the film ends if your predominant feelings about the film is more against what those two cutaway scenes are trying to accomplish then I then I understand yeah. what you're saying in terms of like the film being faulted. <laughs> I I think for me, if I want to like put my cards on the table, I think like within the form of this disjointed narrative, I think Colin gives a pretty committed performance in a way that like you don't necessarily see often. And so like at the end, I think I was moved by him in a sense that I'm just sitting there like. How do you I I think when you finish most war movies and they end with the question of like, how can we expect this individual to reintegrate into society? Sometimes that falls a little flat because those movies tend to remove said individual from the like from bearing the responsibility of the horrible things that they are seeing. Like a lot of times. A lot of times our American war films tend to alleviate the protagonist from if you take Platoon, for example, yes. the way that the Charlie Sheen character is not necessarily complicit in yes. the most horrible things that he is witnessing. Yes, but it still changes him. But he's not movie is bullshit. But he's not he he is not a an, an actor in the stuff that he is seeing. Yes. I think I think what I was kind of just like struck in a dumbfounded way at the end of this film was like i was like man i really don't know how this guy integrates back into society when he 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 dropped his friend off his back in the middle of a river and just like floated back to london i mean i'm gonna say it 2009 hurt locker comes out does the hurt locker not do everything you're seeing in this movie better no, right? it does. It does. I'm not trying to say I'm not the, trying to say that this is better than the Hurt Locker. The, the Hurt Locker has this sense yeah. of like low simmering complicity, right? Like that idea that like, well, they're adrenaline junkies, that they need this like horrific environment to basically get off that they're 100%, like, yeah, so much of the Hurt Locker is about you watching these guys consciously choosing to ignore I the think like devastation their presence is inflicting upon the cities if we're gonna get into it so much about the hurt locker my take of the hurt locker stems from the scenes early on with the psychologist i forget his name yeah. like the harvard educated psychologist who's there who's saying that like like war is an opportunity to experience things that you will never have the opportunity to experience otherwise. And I think that's inherently what the movie is about. But the movie also has an awareness of like, these people are so alienated from the place that they have just been dropped into ready to rock and roll and the stuff with the child and Renner's like inability to distinguish if it's actually the kid that he's been interacting with or just some other kid that looks like the kid that he's been interacting with. I think the Hurt Locker, in a sense, is aware of um, those imperialist 
qualities towards being Amer- an American soldier abroad in the yeah. in specifically like in post World War II uh, one military of, fashion. One of I think Bigelow's greatest strengths as a filmmaker is her willingness to like throw unresolved conflicting like points of view into the same movie. Yeah, and like not 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 try to like neatly neatly tie or, or resolve them. And She's, like that can get her in trouble sometimes because like that's <laughs> that's what happens then with Detroit and Zero Dark Thirty yeah. is that she like flies a little too close to the sun with that. Um, yes, I think, you know, personally, like I've, I've seen Detroit once and I don't feel qualified to speak about it, I guess right now. But in terms of Zero Dark Thirty, like it is that sense of we're Bigelow's. Bigelow is not scared to treat the character as a traditional protagonist while at the same time saying like this character like is maybe the antagonist of the film. We don't truly know. The the problem with Zero Dark Thirty and this is have you read. Have you read Walter Murch's in the blink of an eye? I have. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, the bit in a blink of an eye where he compares editing to like phantom pain. Yeah. In uh in a human body that like sometimes a doctor needs to understand that like if someone's shoulder hurts, the shoulder might not be the cause of it, the elbow might be the cause of it, and it might be a nerve ending thing. There's all this fucking ugliness in the first act of the hurt lock, uh, Zero Dark Thirty. And I do think holistically. Zero Dark Thirty comes down on the side of like being pro torture. Like I, I do, <laughs> I do fall on the side of that. But the reason Zero Dark Thirty, the reason Zero Dark Thirty has the problems it does, is because it ends with them killing Bin Laden. Yeah, but because because they made Zodiac right, and then it, it's like if Fincher made Zodiac, and then a year before he wraps like the release date they actually caught the zodiac killer and he had to append that onto the end of a movie that but was it's about- like it's almost like not even that they caught him but like they caught him and he died in some shootout like and he died in some in shootout sticks. and yeah. like all the stuff that he was portraying as like inefficient and messy ended up catching the guy so like bigelow and bull made this movie about them not catching bin laden and i think if they don't get bin laden at the end the torture reads completely differently but the fact of the matter is once you get bin laden at the end the torture seems good like because it gets results at the end of the day it gets results as a function of the film the film is saying that the ends justify the means exactly which is not necessarily i think if if you're also if you're looking at like the lifespan of that film if you're looking at like the true process from it being like the undertaking of like, Oh, it'd be interesting to make a film about this hunt for bin Laden to the end point that we get. It's like, that is clearly not the starting point that they left off at, especially the discussions that are being had about Guantanamo Bay and everything that happened after Obama had had been elected. If they had not already gone before cameras when they killed bin Laden, I think they were like days away from going in front of cameras when they killed bin Laden. Yeah, like the it it lines up that neatly that like they're ready to make a movie about them not getting the guy, and then they have to change the ending. Well, can I extend? Can I extend this this uh tangent just a little bit? <laughs> to, sure. This is the same scenario as Jimmy Fallon's Fever Pitch. 
Yes, which is a film about is. how destructive is. how destructive a man's obsession with sports is to like the sanity of of a. <laughs> of normal human existence but the problem is that the fucking red sox won the world series while he was making the movie so again like in a sense the in the function of the film the ends justify the means because only because the character is as crazed as he is about the red sox throughout the runtime of the film can he fully experience the like the you the pure like insane euphoria of the red sox finally winning the world series that his character is is like yeah. the kindness that his character is 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 blessed with at the end of the film which is not clearly when when they had greenlit that picture was not what the the final sentiment was intended to be didn't they have to like actively interrupt the real post-game celebrations to shoot the like last couple moments of that movie yeah and i think from what i understand didn't they like clear the I'm teams obviously off the a sports field? guy. I remember watching yeah. that film when it came out when I was like nine years sure. old, ten years old. I think that film came out. I guess that film must have come out in 2005. Did it came out in 2005? Yeah. Um, but I remember my understanding is like they had essentially shot the entire film and then the Red Sox pro- progress because they, they had stuff that they were shooting during the season, like during yes. games, during the seventh inning stretch, but after games had completed, before games had started such and such, blah, 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 blah. They essentially like had finished the movie and then the Red Sox just kept progressing through the postseason. So they were like, oh, I guess we have to like tack on another scene that addresses the fact that they're playing in the ALCS. And then they have the greatest, I, I you know, I said that the Miracle on Ice was like the greatest underdog victory in American sports. They legitimately had like the greatest comeback story in professional baseball history where they were down three games to none to the Yankees and they won four in a row to go to the world series. So then they have to like the, the makers of that film had to completely rework the ending of the film because all of a sudden the Red Sox are playing in the world series and you can't have a film come out the following year that overlooks the fact that the Red Sox played in the world series. And then the Red Sox won the world series and you can't have a film about this coming out the following year that overlooks you could the just make it be set in 2003, series. right? Like you could just, yeah. I know the players don't match up then. Um, how can you not be romantic about baseball? Soderbergh should have made Moneyball. I just, I, I keep thinking about how much better the Soderbergh version would have been with like animated Clippy explaining sabermetrics <laughs> to you. Like that's a movie. What if, uh, what if Wes Anderson made Moneyball? Sure. You know that Soderbergh was going to do it with Clippy. <laughs> I right? do, I do. Yeah, I, that would have yeah. been great. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about that dry like how every Wes Anderson movie has like a dry analytical character yeah. who can like break down everything yeah. in an autistic oh, Wes, yeah. Someone needs to whisper the words baseball movie to Wes Anderson because he's going <laughs> to fucking, how good is Asteroid City, man? It's so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. It's, so it's so good. good. It's the best movie from 2023 about atomic bomb tests in the American <laughs> Southwest. And it's the best movie from 2023 where, where, where Margot Robbie plays a character who like liminally crosses the liminal boundaries of reality and fantasy. <laughs> so weird. If we can divorce from the politics of this movie and get into like, why I just don't think it's satisfying on a narrative level to like, keep running the train of comparing this to better movies. I haven't seen Fever Pitch. I don't know if Fever Pitch is better or worse than Triage. Um, 
I think we've had this conversation. I think you've said no, but remind me, have you seen Gregor Rocky's Mysterious Skin? No, no. Mysterious Skin is the movie this movie wants to be. It lifts the structure almost identically because Mysterious Skin is also a movie about someone keeping a secret of like unspoken past trauma. And like the whole movie is like, them not talking about it, them not talking about it, them not talking about it. And then the climax of the movie is like, and now here's an extended flashback while I tell you what happened. Um, it's well, I kept same... thinking the whole time, I was like, I was not, something about this film did catch me off guard. Like I was not expecting that flashback to be the actual, um, the, the actual revelation of like what this film yeah. is about. I just feel like I was following it on different terms. and. And I was rewatching it today before we started talking. And uh, I do think I, I, I walked away from it the first time a lot higher on it. And I think I was just watching the movie. Sometimes when you watch a film, you're not actually watching the film that's being shown to you. You're watching like your interpretation of the film that's playing in your mind concurrently to the one that you're seeing on yeah. the screen. And that was totally what happened to me the first time that I watched it, where I was like, I'm watching this film about, again somebody who is caught up in in these economic discussions about like the west place within a world that is falling apart in in third world areas or areas that are less developed in a western sense which is while well, i was rewatching the film not what the film no. wants to be about no. um but it's why the the flashback revelation like caught me so off guard. And while I'm watching, I'm like, "Whoa, this is so Tennessee Williams that the film it's is doing very, that right now." You know what? Yeah. You know what? I've never read Suddenly Last Summer, but my understanding of Suddenly Last Summer is that Suddenly Last Summer also has this narrative structure. Yeah. But, it, the, yeah. Oh, you know, almost because there's issues of mental health in Suddenly Last Summer yeah. as well. That it like it. This this is almost like the war photojournalism yeah. version of Suddenly Last Summer. I think the difference between this movie and Mysterious Skin, though, is that from minute one of Mysterious Skin, you know what happened, right? The movie is not mm-hmm. actually that cagey about what this awful, horrible, buried memory is. Um, and every time someone floats like, other theories like there's this whole plot in that movie where brady corbett thinks he was abducted by aliens and that's why he's missing some memories from his childhood um every time someone dances around it or refuses to answer a question about it or just like comes up with alternate theories or acknowledges they don't know what happened you the audience know what mysterious skin is about the movie like is pretty clear from the beginning what it has to be so when the big horrific flashback revelation comes it is this like cathartic burst of the unspoken being spoken right it's like a pure purest example of greek dramatic irony triage i think wants to be a mystery and that structure doesn't work when you're actually being cagey about what happened and you actually have this like fake out twist that you think people are gonna buy with this like overlooming like specter of the genocide the movie isn't deeply tragic in that sense it's just kind of annoying yeah well i think what you're saying is like the film wants to be a mystery but it doesn't understand that the mystery that the 
that the viewers tuned into, which is, I guess, why I'm saying that I was caught off guard by this, by the revelation at the end, is because the mystery that you, as you're saying, the mystery that the viewer is anticipating is one that actually contends with what's happening to the Kurdish people in Iraq. Or, yeah, yeah, in Iraq. But And then it doesn't in any way whatsoever, and it's just about... Colin Farrell and, and his buddy. Yeah. yeah. And like, again, it's this like specter of what happened to David that's just not interesting to watch vis a vis this structure because there's only one thing that could have happened to David, right? Yeah. He, you, you, you know, know you know, from you know, from the minute that Paz Vega's character brings up the fact that David has not returned. Yeah. When um mark colin farrell is has has like finally arrived back in london and has kind of integrated at the first step back into so he's bathed and he's put on normal clothes and he's had a night's sleep so he's a little bit back to his like normal routine a little bit and paz vega's character brings up the fact i believe her name is elena brings up yeah. the fact that david has not returned yet and you know from that instance that he has to be dead but that I think there's just that no movie, way that he's I think that movie thinks it's being cagey about it, you know, because at the very least, there's still this question of like, well, how did he die? And that's not interesting, right? The how isn't no. actually interesting. Yeah. This movie thinks the how is interesting. Well, the how is interesting in the sense of like how complicit Mark is in David's death is the only sure. thing is what I'm saying is like but what, the reason what I was affected at the end of the film. And I think part of it is due to Colin's performance but, is that I leave the film just being like, damn, I don't know how this I really don't know how this guy figures it out afterwards. Yeah. Like it ends on such a pessimistic note it to ends me on a very... where I literally can't figure out how this man like like. I feel like I... when the movie ends, I'm like, this guy's wife is probably going to leave him at some point because he's so far gone. He he's never he lost his friend. He's never going to be close with his friend's wife ever again. Like he's not he's he's lost his profession. I don't know if he can hold a camera anymore because he's so traumatized by this. Like, I really have no idea how this guy returns to anything, any semblance of a meaningful existence See, after this. Experience. I, I kind of disagree. I think this movie's shooting for the fucking uh, Goodwill Hunting ending, where he has the big cry and then he's fine because he's processed his trauma. I I because that's where they hug. But him what yet. I'm saying, what I'm saying is, I think my feelings towards it are like unintentional. Like I think yeah, okay. I agree with you that like that's what the movie thinks it's doing the Goodwill Hunting thing. Where yeah. I'm, where instead I'm at the end of the movie and I'm like, this guy is like really suffering suicidality. Yeah, you, he, I just. <laughs> I know Mysterious Skin is not like a fun movie. You gotta watch Mysterious Skin, dude. Right. It's it's hitting every button you want this movie to hit. <laughs> okay. Is the thing. It's just like the most heartbreaking movie ever made. Um, I'm also not that taken with this Colin performance. You you know what you know what performance this movie made me think of his performance in this movie. Truly, I'm not being an asshole. Another Colin performance or no. a, okay. Some, I thought specifically of one other performance while watching this performance. Is it man? Uh, what year? What, 2004. What year? 2004. It's um, a, it's a lead role. It's a lead role in a big blockbuster in 2004. A lead role in a big blockbuster in 2004. I was gonna my my like lead guess was gonna be Blood Diamond, but that's no. that's 2006. Nope. So yeah, is it something similar to that? No. 
No. Okay. I don't know. Uh, it's set in a similar area of the world as this movie. Let's say this. As in London or as in Eastern Europe? Or I mean, as the in the Middle East. I'm <laughs> like in Bosnia. It's in my set head, in the I'm Middle like East. in Bosnia. Yeah, yeah. It's set in the Middle East. And it's from 2004. Uh, is it's part this, of it. It's, is it's, part of it set in the Middle East. All of it is set in the Middle East. The entire movie is set in the Middle East. And it's a Um, white actor? It's a white actor who is currently has a movie that is Storm in the Box Office. Is it Passion of the Christ? Uh, The performance I thought of most is Caviezel in Passion of the Christ. He does look very... It's because he does look very Jesus like, and movie. part of it is because Colin lost a lot of weight for this role to look very emaciated. I think someone yeah. I saw someone say 40 pounds, which is insane, but he does look very emaciated. And I was struck by the the almost like very much how you, you mentioned it, but the opening moments of this movie is him like being like stripped and taken onto like a hospital cot, right? To be taken care of. And mm-hmm. I was struck by how much he was being shot, like Gibson suits because of easel, but then like. Maybe I just couldn't get that in my head, but he just plays this character with this like world on his short shoulders martyrdom the second he gets back to London. That I was just thinking of the belabored dignity, right? The like sense that I'm performing respectful dignity that is all Caviezel brings to passion. And I, not, I see though. that's all I see in this. That's performance. not what Colin's doing though. Like, oh, that's kind all of, I like, see. He's kind of just like he's a bad person like that's that's, that's what i'm saying about this movie he's a good person i think, I think the movie it. thinks he's a good person but i think colin is playing him as I, as kind of a fucked up guy as like i don't a pretty see bad that guy. at all because if he was playing as a bad guy the character would be more exciting but he's not it's just respectable martyrdom i get what you're saying i think if like, you rewatched it and you just paid attention to his performance and sure. didn't pay attention to anything else i think you would see his performance i i think Lee because is- uh, what what you're saying what you're saying is the function of the film yes that is what the film is asking of the yes. lead actor in this role to do that's what i think colin's given us i just don't think colin's actually doing that in this role but but think yeah. about how like legitimately like morally complicated Christopher Lee is in this movie and how yeah. like he's selling these like unanswered questions of this guy's history because yeah. the the idea of I said this in the plot snuffs but Christopher Lee plays a psychiatrist who was like allied with the fascists in the Spanish Civil War and he's introduced as like Mark the Colin character is deterior mentally deteriorating and yes. elena doesn't know what to do and her only hope is i'll call my grandfather who's like a master her strange yeah, grandfather. who's who's like undeniably a masterful psychologist yeah i have not spoken to him in maybe a decade or two because i don't agree with what he did post Spanish Civil War because what rehabilitating it, yeah. these like horrible men who who committed mass atrocities against the the yes the Republic Republican, right? Was the, the Republican. Yeah. yeah. The Republican. Or the Spanish loyalists. Um, so the non Falco, yeah. the non Falco, Franco, Franco. <laughs> the non Franco. She, she feels Edie like he's, Spain. She, she feels like he's complicit in these war crimes. And that's why he doesn't talk to her. His take is more like people have a right to be cured. Right. Yeah. And that he he almost ex- feels like it was a job. It was a job I did, which obviously is the well, like just following orders specter. But I think Christopher Lee plays this sense of like, 
I am this professional who has divorced myself from the geopolitical realities of the job I have to do. His performance is 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 good, astounding, and the way yeah. the character is written, he's by far the best written character in this movie. Yeah, and he he mentions at one point it's not necessarily like. I believe that all like he never he never takes that moral stance of like, I believe that all people are deserving of being cured. But he takes a stance of like they were the victors of the war. Yeah. And once you commit atrocities like that, who knows when you draw the line again? Like once you take one life, does it he genuinely doesn't know if it's any harder to take the next life? Or if it remains as difficult as it was to take the first life and as such. So he's he's saying that he did what he did out of like a duty to the Spanish people to kind of return the nation to any semblance of of like normal human community that existed yeah. beforehand by like knowing that these people who committed these crimes will never be prosecuted against for what they did because they won because they were the victors of the war by having them willingly renounce what they did and renounce what they participated in. He's like allowing the Spanish, he's like allowing Spanish society to like return to a more civilized state, which yeah. is, I I just wish that was Weird. what the movie was about. You hear that and you're like, that's what the movie should be about. Like you should have just made a movie about this yeah. character in the I, late 1940s. I, I think the movie thinks is contrasting that with the more moral purity of Mark. And I, I don't think I buy that, but I think Lee plays so. the like, yeah. Lee plays the like almost soullessness at the core of this guy in, in such an interesting fashion while also functioning as the like Robin Williams role in this movie. I don't know. Um, the more we talk about a, this, the more like lost I'm getting yeah, because like when I think movie. of Mark, like Mark does not do a single thing throughout this entire film that is morally pure. Yeah, he literally does not do a single thing throughout the entire runtime. Do you uh, do you want to do it? The you didn't Lee. even think about this. You're <laughs> you're scared, aren't you? The Christopher Lee. I Christopher mean, Lee. the thing about Lee is like, I he he was in 313 movies. Is he was, but I I don't know. I haven't done I haven't done like an actual survey, but I feel like 80 percent of them are like B movies yeah be like genre films. yeah that's what's yeah. cool about it it is cool but I, I don't know if I like like this would be the by far the least qualified Rushmore that we would do which I'm like fine no, no like, hey like, I'll speak, do for it. You, speak for yourself good sir you you say I've you've seen, seen enough of his films to... I've seen quite a few of these suckers okay. all right I mean if you if you don't yeah. want to do it, that's no. Fine. I'll do it. I'll do it. You got to give me a minute because I didn't think about it though before. Well, you have to take the lead, so I have to take the lead. Um, yeah. I I think he's given the most fun inserts in Return of the King, but I'm probably gonna throw Fellowship out there as like the obvious Lord of the Rings pick. Fellowship and not Two Towers. <sighs> Yeah, but in Fellowship, you have, has the if, dude, in Fellowship you have when he like captures Gandalf and like Gandalf that's up on really the tower it. and everything. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but that 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 moment is like so good. It's a good scene. I mean, the only thing about casting Christopher Lee in that role is like you know he's evil from like the second you see Christopher sure, Lee. Sure, but I role. I don't think the yeah. movie thinks it's pulling one over on you. <laughs> no, I don't either. With that cast. Um, um, uh, this is a really hard pick. I'm going to go with fellowship just because I, even though 
he has less scenes, I think it's like, I think it's like a more standalone performance than Two Towers is because Two Towers has to bleed into Return of a, Return of the King in a way that Fellowship is itself like a singular film okay. that still bleeds into the following two, but not in as strict a manner. Does that make sense? Do you kind of get sure. what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know that I agree with that with what you're saying. Yeah, and he's good. And that's like, that's probably the thing he was most remembered for when he died, right? I think so. I mean, was... I think that's... I think that's the, I, there's a there's a, like a pretty obvious one for me that yeah. you probably know I'm going to pick if you leave on the table. So I'm going to leave it. Oh, it's staying on the table. OK, OK. Then then <laughs> uh, I, I think a certain age of person remembers him for that film and not Lord of the Rings. But I think everybody that's our age yeah. knows him as fucking yeah. white wizard in Lord of the Rings. Saruman. Yeah. Well, I gotta, I gotta crack what I think is the other, other iconic Christopher Lee performance. Uh, even if I don't necessarily think it's the best, it's just gotta be on there. Uh, it's the Wicker Man. Was that it? Was that what you were going for? I, there was, there were two that I was driving okay. the line between, and I was like, I, I don't know which one you're gonna think I'm saying. I, I don't. The one I was referring to as like people of a certain age think of him in this role is not yeah. the Wicker Man. But the yeah. Wicker Man, I think, is like for cinephiles, it's probably like yeah. for, true, know, I, for like the true cinephile, it's probably the one that you remember him the most. I, I thought about going for Dracula. And I guess this is where I spoil that my, my second pick is not going to be Dracula um, as good as I thought he was, obviously, as Dracula. Um, yeah, what if we don't have him? There is just, there is something about the like degree to which he is a ringer in the the Wicker Man. If you get what I'm saying, yeah, yeah. That like part of it is the fact that like he did the movie for free because he loved the script so much. But part of it is the like deployment of him in the movie that it's just like. I, I, Robin Hardy, am putting Christopher Lee in this movie as like a fucking indicator that the vibes are going to get bad real quick, right? That like yes, that yes, that movie yeah. is so coy and slow and like enveloping. With you don't. The... I think if you, it's impossible to see it this way today, and yeah. for us to see it this way because obviously we were born two decades yeah. after that movie came out. But I think I, I, the first time I saw that film, I was like. I really, really, really wish I could understand the mindset of somebody who just like went to see a matinee and did not realize they yeah. were walking into like a horror movie of this. Like this one of the most upsetting horror <laughs> yeah. movies of the era. But like, yeah. I think that the weird, the weird tension of that movie is that like so much of the narrative of that movie is this like slow descent into hell that like, it's almost like the whole like boiling a frog in, in, boiling a frog thing where like it just gets hotter and hotter and you the frog doesn't really register that it's dying until it's dead that, yeah. like that's what's happening to the protagonist of that movie and that's what's happening to us as the audience but then also we're like we're in this weird tension between that and the fact that it's using christopher lee as an iconic figure of menace so effectively that like the second he shows up you're like but I know it's going to get bad because that's what Christopher Lee means. And he's just exuding this menace. And I think 
one of the big problems with Midsommar is that Midsommar does not have Christopher Lee in it. And so Midsommar needs to like drop in the ultraviolence early to try to get the same potent terror that just Christopher Lee being on screen brings to the Wicker Man. It doesn't have Christopher, like, I'm I'm sorry for being frank in this manner. It doesn't have Christopher Lee in it. So it needs like, like a, a horribly physically disabled man yeah. to show up it, at some it point needs, to it, like it needs to, to drop leather that face something in. wrong it yeah. drops leather face into that movie because that's the only way it can match the energy of that christopher lee performance yeah and obviously just just how calm he is through everything it's just fucking it's the best he was ever used in a movie and i think he knew that and that's why he did the movie for free um it's not his best performance though uh I don't think you've seen the movie I'm about to name, but if you have, you will know that I am right. Uh, Next entry on the Christopher Lee Mount Rushmore is the 1963 Mario Bava film, The Whip and the Body. No, haven't seen that. Have you seen, how familiar are you with Bava? Not very, I would have to admit. Bava's whole shtick is these like super gothic dream logic psychosexual nightmares that are like barely comprehensible like italian just like assaults on the senses um and leaf it so well into those the whip in the body is about this like sadistic aristocrat who's very into sadomasochism and like whipping women and torturing women in an erotic fashion, who then dies and becomes this like SM ghost haunting this manor. Oh man. Um, and it's just this like, even with the fact that you don't get his actual speaking voice, just as a purely physical performance, because it's an Italian movie, right? Um, and he didn't do the the English language dubbing, I don't think. He might have done the UK dubbing, I can't remember. Just as a physical performance this pure emasculation of like nightmare evil that is like so divorced from the sort of regal dignity that he has later in his career, that it's just pure physical sexual id. Um, I think it's the best performance he ever gave. Um, I think that movie's captivating uh, and more people should watch the whip in the body. I think Baba said it was his favorite of his movies. Um, it's not my favorite Baba movie, but it's terrific. And Christopher Lee is just, it, it, again, it's, it's like what I say about how, like, have you seen The Leopard? I have, yeah. I have the, 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 the Leopard is one of my, like, exhibit A's and Burt Lancaster being one of the best movie stars of all time because his voice is taken away from him, right? Yeah. Like, true. it has to just be the body. And that's what Lee does in this, is that it's just pure pure physicality to convey terror. When, when so much of his gift is his voice, Right, that's so much of the hook of Saruman or like Man of Dracula, or you know, I haven't seen this film, so you could tell me if I'm wrong. But from the way you're describing it, it's like dropping an older Gene Kelly into young girls of uh Russia for it, and yes, just like yes, allowing his pure star magnetism to exude on screen, even though he's not speaking English, and it's I don't think it's his voice when he is speaking French. It's uh, it might be, but um, well, he's doing it phonetically if he is speaking French, because he speaks French in American Paris too, and I think it it sounds it sounds the same in Rochefort. But yes, I think that is a good. You know, God, Kelly's so good in that movie. Um, yeah, it's the whip in the body. It's great. More people should see it. 
Um, even for Bava, I feel like it's a deep cut, which is weird because it is one of his better movies. Uh, Bava Rules is a pro Mario Bava podcast. Um, before we cap this off, do you do you have a favorite Dracula of his? You know, weirdly, I've only seen the first one. Oh, really? Yeah. That's one of my bigger blind spots with Christopher it's, Lee. It's weird because it's one of those, it's one of those late 50s into the early 70s things that happens with like that was just a a feature, a regular feature of uh of series, like of yeah. um franchise filmmaking at that time, where every succeeding film is like so different from the preceding yes. one. And it's even impossible to understand if they exist in continuity with each other or not. Um yes. And I know the later ones get more erotic, but I do think there's something about like the weird, like trying to figure out how far he could push the envelope eroticism yeah. of that 58 performance that I, I do love. It's just the Wicker Man's better. Well, I, just one of the things about Christopher Lee is I think speaking to both of your picks, speaking to the Wicker Man and from the other Mario Bava I've seen and trying yeah. to relate my own impression of what Christopher Lee would look like in that kind of scenario is like the iconic earlier depiction of Dracula by Bella Lugosi is yes. someone of externally such like traditional dignity, but like this seeming destructive eroticism that lays like underneath it. And, and Lee's, Lee also has that like weird uncanny ability to capture something like psychosexual about his status, like on the screen. And partly because he's like a towering figure who's extremely tall, who's got yeah. a, a very exaggerated, sharp features, both like facially and like proportionally, but he's also something that is at play in triage. It was like, he was a British officer during world war two who has been confirmed to have killed like many Nazis during the war. Uh, one of and, one of the inspirations yeah. for James Bond. Yes, and like, yeah. like had spent time undercover behind enemy lines. Was like parachuted in. Yeah. He he told, um, Danis Tanovich that he parachuted into Bosnia during the war, like as a means to get up to Austria without being. Um, you without you know the Peter Jackson going. story, right? Yeah, about. He he told that, that he was supposed to scream or something when he got yeah. stabbed, and he told Peter Jackson he was like, "That is not what people sound like when they get." Yeah, stabbed. he's like, "I've stabbed yeah. someone in the lungs." I've, he was like, "I've stabbed someone in this exact fashion before." I know how I need to die. <laughs> yeah, I I I watched the special features on the Blu-ray that I got, and there's yeah. like a little featurette. There's there's short interviews with all the actors as they do on these behind the scenes documentaries that are made for for films that honestly like aren't aren't developed as much anymore because of the state of streaming like when you no, have a film that just comes out on netflix you're not getting that like behind the scenes in the, scenes even, in the same manner even by the standards of 2003 
the Lord of the Rings movies had like extensive special features. Oh no, no, no! I'm saying for yeah. triage. Oh, for triage. Oh, yeah. I thought you, thought I was, you watched that. I was no, no, no. <laughs> the, Sorry. The, the Return Sorry. of the King yeah. specials. The Lord, the Lord of the Rings has like the most extensive behind yeah. the, the scenes special. He features shot of, like, everything. Any like he, he went into that. Yeah. Um, for for the triage special features, there's there the, uh, Lee and Tanovich are like speaking about how they actually like came into contact with each other. Tanovich had the screenplay written, and he was at an industry event, I believe, in Germany. And yeah. Christopher Lee just happened to be there, and they were sitting at the same table. Christopher Lee asked him if he was working on anything, and he said, "Oh, I have the script I'm developing." And he told them the story about like a a, a war photojournalist and things of that nature. And they somehow they started speaking about the Bosnian civil war and Christopher Lee told them about how he was also part of like, he, he was also experienced Bosnia during wartime, just decades before. And he said something along the lines of like, you know what war is like, and I know what war is like, mm-hmm. and I can help you make this picture what the way you want it to be if you want. And they had like no dream of, of bring them on board. Um, Regardless of what that means, to get to what I'm saying, yeah, he brings that danger to Dracula that Bella Lugosi didn't have in the initial run. Sure, in in a way, yes. in a way that's very visceral to me that I don't see when I'm watching the the Bella Lugosi. Is is that Bella your fourth Lugosi pick? Group. No, my fourth. He's the man with the golden gun. Bro. I know he's the fucking man with the golden gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's his name? Scaramanga, right? I think da, it's Scaramanga. Da, it's Scaramanga, yeah. Da, yeah. Da, da. Is that the best Bond villain? Oh, oh, actually, I don't know if I've ever thought about it before. Who the best villain might be. I, I mean, would put in, him in third place. In fourth place. I love, I love Goldfinger. Just because he's just a Fifth fucking place. fat Danish guy. Yeah. Like, there's nothing funnier yeah. to me that, like, the most iconic Bond villain is just, like, a fat Danish guy who loves fucking money so much. He's gonna, yeah. like, he's gonna set off a nuclear device in, in, a, in <laughs> the U.S. gold stores. Um, what are they, what are the other ones that are out there for you? This, this would be my top five Bond villains. Wait, wait, let me guess. Blofeld, but on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Blofeld. My number five would be Goldfinger. Right? Yeah. Iconic. My number four is Scaramanga. Scaramanga. Yeah. My number three, I would say Blofeld, period. Like, you, collectively. you, have, to pick, you have to pick a specific. Then one. I am, in fact, going with Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice okay. over Telly Savalas in Honor Magic Conservative. No, that's 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 fair enough. Yeah. My number two is Red Grant, the the assassin from, uh, uh, from Rush With Love, mm. played by Robert Shaw. Number one, Connor, it's it's Alex, it's Alec from Goldeneye. It's Sean Bean. He's the best uh, Bond villain. Sure. He's the best Bond villain. Sure. I, I mean, I kind of or like... Or England James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. I mean, Jaws isn't on the list. Jaws is fine. Yeah. Jaws is a henchman, not a villain. Yeah, I guess but, you could um, say the same about Red, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like Red but, is also, but Red is so centered in that movie because he's the uh, anti-Bond. Yeah, over over Rosa Klebb. Yeah, over Rosa Klebb. Red is so centered in that movie. Uh, I'm gonna go with Goldfinger. 
I'm gonna go with gold. I'm gonna lock him in. Bum, bum, yeah. bum, 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 oh, you know who I love? Bum. You know who I love? Christopher Walken as like evil Captain America <laughs> as the evil super soldier. But like my, my, my thing about Scaramanga is that that's such a stupid character. And yeah, he Lee just wants plays to him with kill like Bond. such like sex and dignity he... and like class. Class, right? That's what <laughs> he, he wears he to it as class. He wears like jumpsuits all the time. Yeah. And he has a he has a, a realistic life-size, I guess, wax figure of Bond in his class in his yeah. collection that he can practice against it's, oh, it's great we love him i'm so glad he got to be a bond villain i don't love that movie but um i feel like we did a recent mount rushmore of somebody who is also a bond villain but i can't remember who it was okay let's let's look yeah. at the list of bond villains i don't think we did because we didn't do rami malik we didn't do uh I might we be. I might just be completely wrong. I might. We be... didn't do. We didn't do Mas Mikkelsen. We didn't do Matthew Amarik. We didn't do Javier Bardem. We didn't do Christoph Waltz. We didn't do Jonathan Price, but we were talking about Jonathan Price. That, that might be what it was. That might. Oh shit! Shit! I blanked. I apologize. But who is it? Alec is still number one. No, 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 no. For my ranking, I forgot somebody. This is my hottest take of all time. Alec is still my number one, but slot everyone else down. So number five is Scaramanga. Number four is Blofeld. Number three is Red Grant. Uh, this is my hottest Bond take, Connor. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> number two is Electric King. Oh. Sophie Marceau in the world is not enough. That's bad that's a bad the, take no that's, that's a, a great i love her that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a great a performance take. it's an incredible performance it's just a cool bit having the bond girl be the mastermind you want to know you want to know my hot take about i would nominate marceau for best supporting actress that you want to know you want to know what my hot take about that movie is uh christmas jones is a perfectly fine name for a physicist nope that's the best brosnan bond performance of all you know what that movie <laughs> maybe I, I mean i think that's Golden the one Eye. movie where he turns into you know when she has him like like with the thing around his yeah. neck strapped to the chair and he just turns into a complete psychopath because it's the only time in his entire life that he's ever he's ever been like incapacitated in a way where he can't get out of the situation without somebody's help that and he just he he berates her in a way that only a blue collar irish man like would be capable of yeah that like in no way an englishman of the dignity that bond is supposed to exude on screen would be would be able to do that and i'm just like that is why you make brosnan james bond <sighs> because of all the bonds like even in a way where craig's craig's testosterone is performative yeah. brosnan's is not performative in the same sense like brosnan's brosnan's sheer masculinity is in a sense true to like who i believe pierce brosnan to be and that's the one bond performance where he's still allowed to like unleash it in a way and i guess it's because i guess it's because the love interest is like the supreme antagonist of the film yeah and he's just allowed to hate her in a way that he's not allowed to and others i i am looking at my bond rankings and you would be mad if you saw how high the world is not enough is i, I think, think that movie rules as, i don't think it's as bad as everybody i think that movie's terrific says it is better than casino royale all right let me look at the list real quick and just to bond sure villains i think it's that we were talking about jonathan price um 
That's probably list it. of Bond. I mean, there's plenty of Bond actors. I mean, we just did Lee, but there's plenty of other Bond actors we could do. Like, Man, I forgot could... that Robert Carlyle is the other guy. Carlyle, guy we the, could do the um the guy yeah. with the bullet in his. But I'm just gonna say this: <laughs> we is, <laughs> yeah, we could yeah. do Robert Shaw. We could do Carlisle. We could do Pleasance. We could do Yafet Kota. We could do uh, Michael Lonsdale. That's we my could least do... favorite John Bond movie, though. Which one? one? Oh, that's not my least favorite, but it's not good. We could do yeah. Walk In. Uh, we could do Joe Don Baker. Uh, we could do Robert Dovey. We could do Sean Bean. We could do Price. We could do Nicholson. We could do Bardem. We, we're we not going to do Vaults. We're not going to do Malik. I'm just going to put that After, out there. You, you saw Oppenheimer and you don't want to do Malik now? He's bad in Oppenheimer. He comes in like, man, he comes in like Mariano Rivera coming in to close the game. Malik is bad in Oppenheimer. Safety is bad in Oppenheimer. Oldman is bad in Oppenheimer. <laughs> Everyone else kicks ass in Oppenheimer. Nah, I Those think, three performances are ham sandwiches. I say some, I, I usually, I'm like, that person was throwing heaters. Oldman literally throws a heater in Ugh. Oppenheimer. He's, he, I mean, I don't agree with you on that one. I, uh, we'll, we'll see how I feel when I see it again. Malik, I like, I like Malik, like the idea of him in the movie. So that's enough for me. Like, the, I like the idea of him as that character, as that functionary the, the, device the casting. in the film. The yeah. casting is extraordinary. It's just he gives the exact same performance he gave in Amsterdam. <laughs> that's, no, Something... that's not, no, he doesn't. What are you talking about? <laughs> here's as here's Amsterdam. The... You didn't see he does Amsterdam. Not, you he does, I have saying. seen Amsterdam. He does you not know you did not. No one watched Amsterdam. Um, here's, here's the thing about Rami Malek, right? As an actor. The master... Short Term 12, Buster's Malhart, and Need for Speed. Need for Speed. Four of, like, performances that are, like, as good as anything you could ask from an actor. All right. Have you seen Need for Speed? I have seen Need for Speed. He's extraordinary in Need for Speed. He gets naked and walks out of the office. Do you remember why he gets naked? He doesn't, like wearing a suit or something no it's it's that aaron paul is putting the crew together and rami malik's like the tech guy and malik's like i can't be your cool tech guy i have a dumb i have to be a dumb office nerd now i hate it but i have to be it and and aaron paul is like bet watch this and then like gets into a car chase with the cops just so we can do insane stunts with the car and Malik gets like so turned on by watching how cool this car is that he strips nude <laughs> that movie rules man um what happened with Rami Malik that he is now the worst actor alive is my question like something broke in his brain it's it's in all those movies you just mentioned he plays the most normal character in the movie. And because Rami Malik, Buster's Malhart, he doesn't. Well, no, but in Need for Speed and Short Term 12 and yes. um, The I've, Master. Uh, the Master, yeah. He, he like, in a lot of those, maybe not The Master, but in, in, a, in a lot of those early films, he plays one of the more n- written on paper, the most normal character in the film. And because Rami Malik looks strange. Yes. 
he's allowed to like play down to that normalcy. And then at some point, casting directors were like, we can only cast him to play people who look strange or people who are eccentric in some kind of way, some kind of some kind of abnormal way that stretches beyond what he does in Need for Speed that makes him like a true uh, outsider, like within the space of the film, like within the social circle that the film like depicts. And that's when it's like, he's, I don't think he's that weird in no. in real life. So no. they're only casting him that way based on the way that he looks, which he does I, seem I'll say soulless. like inherently, inherently he's not, like the traditional white guy but i don't think he looks as weird either as these films are like casting him to be have you did you see the little things yeah yeah his performance in the little things is so bad (laughs) and so like mannered and over the top and full of ticks that my big takeaway from the little things was like hey you know jared leto wasn't that bad in that thing (laughs) he makes jared leto look good in that movie I think that's like a he also you know what else happened to him? What? Rami Malek's fucking old, dude. But he, he is doesn't old. look old. He is old. That's the other issue now. He's 42 is years he, old. He looks like he's 24, but he's no, 42. No, he's 42. And that's at some point it becomes an issue because especially with like today, the, with the the politics of today's world and how that plays into casting. He's he, like he he can't just rely on getting roles of like that naive young adult who has just been like thrown into yeah. the world like he has to start getting these roles that are to veteran cops like he is in the little things and stuff like that that he's like just not suited Ugh. to play yeah it's very weird that he is an oppenheimer and lucy boynton's and barbie lucy boynton's and barbie lucy boynton is in the background of a shot in barbie just like in barbie land or in in barbie land she's one of the barbies they definitely i mean have you seen barbie yet i have yeah do you know how they they make the joke exactly do you remember how they make the joke early on about how there was a proust barbie but it didn't sell oh she's she's credited as proust barbie and when they're in kate mckinnon's house with all the other discontinued models she's in the background of one shot so they definitely cut it out and just left her in one shot weird it's very weird do you almost like that movie is sloppy do you think do you think that do you do you think that the original plan was to cast all the Margot Robbie lookalikes and not like other people? Yes. And they got Mackie signed well, on and then the rest of them didn't sign on. So then they I were mean, stuck with Mackie, but not the rest of the, Barbie, the, 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 the not the I, rest I, of the Robbie. I, I, I am going to say no, because Mattel definitely like sat down and told Greta Gerwig like the exact range of like representation she needed to showcase in the Barbies. I know but I'm saying yeah. all the other all the non all the non Isarays or yes. Hari Neff maybe like but how many Margot be... Robbie lookalikes are there like you think they're gonna get Jamie Presley out that'd be funny no but um who's the Babylon the that's the problem Babylon? is Samara yeah. Weaving did it in Babylon and Babylon does yeah. it better than the Emma Mackey stuff in Barbie well, because I, I think what happened was they only got Mackey and then they were like okay yeah. we can't do it anymore because like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you only got one of them. So it's like, we can't follow I, through with the joke now because we only got the one. 
I do sometimes feel like I have a bit of an emperor's new clothes situation where I, I feel like I'm, I'm taking crazy pills and I'm the only person who can fucking see Mattel's hands all over that movie. Um, it is very evident to me that at some point they wanted Mackie to be like the evil Barbie, the one who's like, because she's the first one you see spoilers for Barbie. Oh my God. Sorry. Barbie spoilers. Skip ahead. She's the first one you see brainwashed. And you can so obviously see the version where, like, the one who looks most like Margot Robbie is the one who's, like, willing to be part of this. But, like, there can't be an antagonistic Barbie in that movie, right? Is she the first one you see brainwashed? She's the first one you see brainwashed. She comes out in the, the French maid's outfit. And she's like, where are my hungry boys? She's, I thought she's, the first one you see is Issa Rae. Because nope. they're Issa like, Rae's oh, next. they're playing. And she's like. Oh yes, sorry. Beer, yes. right? You yeah. see her. She's the first one who, like, you see, like, yeah, interacting before it becomes like, what's going on? Yes, you do see Issa Rae earlier, but like, once they're like, oh my god, they're brainwashed. Then Emma Mackey walks out in the maid outfit, um, and you can see a world where she's the antagonist Barbie, but there can't be an antagonist Barbie I guess because so. Barbie, the Bar- Barbie land has to be flawless because it's a Mattel ad. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, it man. just I saw that movie again and it just blows my mind that the Mattel executives are not wrong about a single thing in that movie and they only have the protagonist's best wishes at heart they have the exact same goals as the protagonist in that movie and at one point Will Ferrell says he cares more about little girls than profits and people are like how did Margot Robbie slip something this subversive past Mattel Oh, oh, I get what you're saying. You mean they have the exact same goals as the protagonist of that movie. Yeah, yeah. Drives me crazy. <laughs> Do you have anything else to say about triage? Um, no, I don't think so. It's weird seeing Kelly Riley yeah. in an yeah. early role. It's just a Kelly Riley performance. She's fine. Yeah. Um, um Paz Vega is good. Eh. I'm not as I'm not as well seen in her filmography, I guess. You know what movie she's really fucking good in? Uh, I I mean, I've seen Sexy Lucia or whatever. I've ne- not seen Sexy Lucia. <laughs> That's not what I was going to say. I know everyone yeah. says she's good in that. I've never seen it. You know what movie she's really fucking good in? What? Spanglish. Every day I think to myself, is Spanglish secretly a masterpiece? Really? Because really? I don't think Spanglish works at all, but it's so interesting. And it takes that, like, so many big choices. We I think we watched part of it in Spanish class when I was in when I was in high school. And I think I went like I think I was there for the first day that we watched it. So I believe I've seen the opening third of the film. And then I went on a field trip for Latin class the next day. So I missed the rest of the movie. And I think for a minute, I, I had it locked in my head that Penelope Cruz was in Spanglish and not Paz Vega. But yeah, I've never seen it. I've never seen it in totality. I do not remember what that movie's about other than like the the bear setup of the Sandler character being like a, a, celebrity chef or, or yeah. rich chef or it's whatever it is. yeah she gets hired to be a maid for this like wealthy family and like because she's a single mom with a daughter like the daughter kind of starts to get like inoculated into this family and like boundaries start getting crossed between like 
employment and being like an extra member of the family. But there's, there's a scene halfway through the movie where she and Adam Sandler get into an argument about how she thinks that Sandler and his wife are like trying to parent her daughter and are like undercutting her own responsibilities as a mother. But her character doesn't speak English in that movie. Um, like that's a plot point. She speaks so English. She just speaks Spanish. Like she 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 does not speak English. Um, so they're having this argument about like how they're treating the daughter, using the daughter as an interpreter in this argument that's about her. And it's like as good as anything James Brooks has ever done. True. Oh. Truly, this this scene is fucking insane. Um, she is completely perfunctory in this movie. Um, Connor, if we're wrapping up here, I swear to God, if you ask me to guess IndieWire's list of the best genocide movies, I'm ending the <laughs> no, podcast no, no. forever. No, no, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a game for you. I was, I just wanted to say one thing yeah. is that, um, Mark's friend, who's played by uh, Jamie Sives in sure. the film. His name is David. The character's name is David. Sure. In the book, his character is named Colin, and they clearly just changed oh. it to David because they didn't want Colin Farrell like yelling Colin. Sure, the whole time. makes sense. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. Uh. That's it for this week. Connor, you want to plug the Instagram? It's at above the title pod. Yep. Um. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Please remember to tell a friend. Um, next week we are finishing up the weird, uh, weird kind of jumbled 2009 release dates with uh, the biggest movie of his own nine and the movie that I think is the key example of my running theory that uh, in Bruce did not actually rebound his career. Um, so join us next week for Crazy Heart. Um, until why then, say, why do you say it like that? That's my, that's my Jeff Bridges impression. <laughs> I assume he sounds like that in this movie. Um, you gotta add, you gotta add some Western Southern. Gotta add some Western, like more like Crazy Heart. Like yeah, crazy because heart. it came, it came out like you were saying it as like Heath Ledger Joker. Okay, like, Crazy Heart. We're watching Crazy Heart. Crazy yeah. Heart. Um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> oh Jesus, that sucks to do. Um, so join us then. Uh, solidarity with SAG, solidarity with the WGA, and uh, until then, uh, fuck it up, you say. It's all been all back to life.